would speak to each and every heart that through the scriptures of the word of God, you would speak to our hearts, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we would be able to learn from the message this morning. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin by saying that no matter how your family chooses to incorporate Christmas or even not to incorporate it altogether, we're certainly free to make our own decisions. But I would say most people overwhelmingly at this time of year in our culture will choose to engage in the Christmas season with some form of traditions that center around families and around celebration and gift giving and meals and all different sorts of things wherever you're from that your family has chosen to incorporate. And I would just encourage each and every one of us, whatever we do or don't do during this time of the year, to remember to keep our entire life centered around Jesus Christ. We certainly have reason to celebrate. We certainly have reason to rejoice. Of all people throughout the world today, as children of God, we should be able, no matter what is going on in our life, no matter what trials we are facing in our nation, we should be able to point our hearts towards heaven and celebrate and rejoice at what God has done for us and in who our God is. The part of the Christmas story, as we like to call it, in the Word of God that we'll focus on this morning will center around the Virgin Mary. Jewish women of this time longed to be able to bear children. They also specifically longed to have a son, to have, as the Old Testament would say, a man-child. This was not just for the passing on of the family name and traditions and those types of things, but they knew that in the Word of God it was promised there would be a Messiah given, that a virgin would conceive and bear a child, and his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And no doubt, many a woman during that day and age wondered and prayed, what if it were to be me? Or what if it were to be my daughter that would be able to bear the Messiah, the Savior of the world? When the New Testament begins, God has been silent for 400 years since the Old Testament. God has not had not spoken. And for centuries, people were in a period of waiting, of longing, of looking, and wondering... When would these long-awaited promises be fulfilled? The story that we find in Luke chapter 1 is the fulfillment of long-awaited promises and, yes, of miracles. There are so many miracles that surround the Christmas story that it would take a long time to catalog and go through all of them. But this morning, we're going to talk about Mary and three different phases of the story in Luke chapter 1. First of all, we'll see the angel visits Mary, then we'll see Mary visits Elizabeth, and then we'll close with Mary's song of praise to God. And praise be to our God who does miracles. Stick with me if you would this morning. Let's look to the text and consider this story. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We find here that this young girl, Mary, who we don't exactly know how young she was, but we believe through history that she most likely was at a very young and tender age, for that was their tradition to be espoused, and then, or meaning engaged, but then a little bit later to be married while they were still quite young. 
to be espoused to this man named Joseph meant that she was engaged to be married to him, but also a little bit more than that. It was a legally binding procedure wherein they would be espoused to be married, but they would live apart physically until the time of the actual marriage, but it would take something severe to be able to break the engagement arrangement. It would take a legal divorce in order to not marry the person that you had been espoused to. As we've talked about through our prophecy series in 1 Thessalonians, how that pictures how Christ has been espoused to his church, but at a later date he will come and will arrive and the final events will take place. And in the meantime, it's the job of the church to live for Christ, to be pure and unspotted from the world. For if we are found at his coming to have been unfaithful to him, we will be ashamed. You can read in Matthew chapter 1 that this man named Joseph, who was a good man, had to be visited by the angel himself to be told that it was God's will that he go ahead and marry Mary because in his mind, the scripture says, he was minded to put her away privately. He was ready to begin the divorce proceedings because he found out that she was with child and the natural assumption that anyone would make is that she had been unfaithful. But he was not vindictive. He was not angry. He didn't want to see her punished for the sake of vengeance. He said, let me seek to divorce her privately, even though they hadn't fully become married yet at that point. The scripture says that Joseph was of the house of David, which is extremely significant. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the verse says that Mary was a virgin. This would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Just understand the impossibility of this. Understand that it's a contradiction in terms. A virgin cannot conceive a child, but this was the promise that was given way back in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah that one day in history there would be a virgin who would conceive and bear a son. And lest there be any argument as to what exactly that meant, who would this child be? The verse then says, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1 quotes this verse and then gives us the definition of it. When it talks about the virgin birth of Christ, it says all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Then notice the end of the verse, which being interpreted is God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. It literally means God manifested to be with us where we are. So the prophecy was a virgin would miraculously conceive and the name of her son would be God with us. Prophesied ever since Isaiah, longed for for centuries. In Luke chapter 1, we find the announcement of this event. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And surely Mary was, for all throughout history, there was only one who God looked down and said, At this particular time, I'm choosing to let her be the mother of the Messiah. What a privilege, what a blessing for her to be used by God in this way. And she was willing to humble herself and yield herself to the will of God. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. 
Why would she not be troubled? Why would she not be afraid? It's not every day after all that an angel appears to you to tell you that you are to have God's Son. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Mary, it's the will of God that you would fulfill this promise that Isaiah gave centuries ago. You've been chosen by the Lord to bring forth the Son of God. It says in Matthew 1, His name shall be Emmanuel, because that means God with us. He has many names. Mighty God, Counselor, Wonderful, Prince of Peace. There's hundreds of names of Christ that we can catalog in the Scriptures. But Emmanuel was given in Matthew 1, and here was given, You shall call His name Jesus. Now in the Hebrew, the name Yeshua that we would say Joshua, that in the Greek to the English would say Jesus, is all part of the same name. And it literally means God who saves. The God who saves. You're going to conceive. You'll bring forth a son. His name will be God with us. His name will be the God who saves. Matthew one twenty one tells us, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. This was the purpose of his birth. And though at Christmas time we focus on how he was given and the miracle of it, it always hangs in the back of our mind. It always hangs over the story itself that this baby was born to die as a sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter who would be dumb before his shears and not open his mouth. He was born to die for the wickedness of the world. He was born to die for my sin and your sin. And as such, part of his life would be defined by the wicked treatment he received from a wicked world who was to reject his gift. Verse 32, Luke 1 continues, The angel Gabriel to Mary continues to say, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall be called great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. Lest there's any argument as to what the Bible claims about Jesus Christ. Just throughout these handful of verses this morning, it's indisputable that the Bible claims that Jesus was given not just to be a prophet, not just to be a good man, but to be the Son of God. God Himself manifested in the flesh. Now notice there the extremely significant phrase that God will give unto him the throne of his father David. We just read in the verse before that it said Joseph, who was to be the dad in the house where Jesus was raised, though he was not Jesus' physical father, we find that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. If you go to Matthew 1 and read all the genealogies, it will trace from King David himself generations down to the man named Joseph, who if Israel had not been in punishment from God, if Israel had had the normal order of their nation continue, Joseph would have been a king, for he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, if you read about it, it's technical, and I'm not going to get into it this morning, but the two separate accounts of the genealogies seem a little bit different, and the answer that most Bible commentators believe, if you trace it, I believe it will bear out that one is the genealogy and lineage, the family tree, if you will, of Joseph, but the other is of Mary. And both of them actually have family ties that go back centuries into the past, all the way 
to King David. Why is this so significant? Because if you study the Old Testament and the Jews themselves would be familiar with what we would call the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David and said, I will make a covenant with you. And my covenant is this, that I will establish your throne forever. And throughout all eternity, there will not cease one of the sons of David to sit upon the throne and to reign and to rule. You see, that prophecy was a prophecy that is to be fulfilled in the future and throughout eternity. For Jesus Christ, one of His names is the Son of David. And when He sits literally on the throne in Jerusalem to reign during the Millennial Kingdom, and then after that, in the New Jerusalem, He rules and reigns as King, He will fulfill the prophecy that a Son of David will sit upon the throne and will rule and reign forever and ever. Therefore, even in the day of Jesus Christ, son of David was a term of the Messiah. When you read the story of Jesus walking through all of the parade and the event where he was at, and the blind people called out, Jesus, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. They were not just saying, Jesus, we don't have any idea who you are, but if you could do something for me, please do it. They were saying, you're the Messiah. I believe. I believe it by faith. And if we will go and say, Jesus, Yeshua, the God who saves, have mercy on me. I believe you are the Messiah. Will you save me? He may not heal our physical problems in that instant, but He will save our soul, which is the ultimate healing. He'll be called great. God will give unto Him the throne of His father, David. Verse 33, the angel continues, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, they have to do with Christ being the sacrificial lamb, yes, but also as the lion, as the king, as the ruler, and he will be Israel's king forever. And then the phrase says, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Daniel says, about the Messiah, this promise. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. God says, look at history. See the kings that rise and fall, but one day there's coming a king that will set up a kingdom in defeat of all other kings, and his kingdom will stand forever. Amen. Daniel 7, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came. Another term for this Messiah. He came with the clouds of heaven. This event is yet to come. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, His kingdom won't pass away. It won't be destroyed. It will last forever. And the angel said, God will cause Him to sit on the throne of His father David. And of His kingdom, there shall be no end. Yes, Herod could rant and rave and be angry that there was another king born and he felt threatened and he said he gave a wicked order that all of the children under two years old were to be killed because he was trying to kill Jesus because he felt threatened. I won't let someone take away my throne. I want to be the king. 
But his life went by like a vapor and he died in an act of judgment from God. And no earthly king will ever be able to stop this from coming true. That there's one true king and he's coming to take away all other thrones and sit on his throne forever. For it belongs to him. Hallelujah. Praise God. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The most natural question. Of course she would want to know. You're telling me I'm going to have a child. How is this possible? Because physically, humanly speaking, it's not possible right now. How will this happen? The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. You see, this was a miracle, unlike any other miracle throughout history. This child that was to be born would not be the son of Joseph. Rather, it would be called the Son of God, holy he would be what we have, some have called the God-man. Meaning he did not begin to exist when he was born into the manger. That's simply when he took on human form. So it's explained as he became man without ceasing to be God. And he was completely man and completely God at the same time. And when he walked around in that human body, he could identify with us. And when he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he didn't drink, he got thirsty. When they beat him and drove nails through his hands, he felt the pain. But He was still God. This then was to be the incredible miracle that though she was a virgin, and though never one single time before Christ was conceived would she have gone through a physical act of intercourse, that when the the shadow of God overshadowed her miraculously within her womb, a conception would take place. She would still be a virgin, but yet she would conceive and be pregnant with the Son of God Himself. What a miracle. John chapter 1. Did, oh, I'm sorry. Let me read this from Matthew Henry's commentary on these verses. She shall conceive by the power of the Holy Ghost, whose proper work in office is to sanctify, and therefore to sanctify the virgin for this purpose. The Holy Ghost is called the power of the highest. Doth she ask how this shall be? This is enough to help her over all the difficulty there appears in it. A divine power will undertake it, not the power of an angel employed in it, as in other works of wonder, but the power of the Holy Ghost Himself. She must ask no questions concerning the way and manner, how it shall be wrought, for the Holy Ghost, as the power of the highest, shall overshadow her, as the cloud covered the tabernacle, when the glory of God took possession of it, to conceal it from those that would too curiously observe the motions of it, and to pry into the mystery of it. The formation of every babe in the womb and the entrance of the spirit of life into it is a mystery in nature. None knows the way of the spirit nor how the bones are formed in the womb of her that is with child. We were made in secret. Much more was the formation of the child Jesus a mystery. Without controversy, great was the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. It is a new thing created in the earth concerning which we must not covet to be wise above what is written. We believe what God said, and that's enough by faith to believe that what God said was true. John describes it this way, speaking of Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All 
things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, He did not begin to exist in the manger. He was not, as the Mormon doctrine would say, created by God, just like all the other little gods, like Satan were created. He is God. And the Bible tells us, though our human mind cannot sink in and grasp it, that before there ever was an earth, before there was a heaven, before there was angels, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. And they created everything. But when Jesus was born in the manger, He simply, as verse 14 says, was made flesh. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He existed in heaven as God since time began. But He was made flesh so that He might accomplish the redemptive plan of God. Let's move on through the text here. Luke 1 and verse 36. And behold, the angel tells her, Thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month wherein her who was called barren. You see, Luke 1 begins with another miracle story of a pregnancy of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest in the temple. He was old. Elizabeth was old also. It was physically impossible for them to have a child. They had never had a child. But the angel Gabriel, the same one who came to tell Mary about Jesus, first came to tell Elizabeth that her and her husband were going to have a son and that he was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is John the Baptist. And because Zechariah did not believe that this was to happen, he was struck with the inability to speak for a certain time in a season because he refused to believe what God had said. But just like God said it was true, it happened. Just like Abraham and Sarah, she miraculously conceived a son who was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. A few months before Mary was to conceive miraculously, the Messiah herself. And the angel tells her about Elizabeth's miracle, I believe, for a couple of different reasons. That she might have someone to go to and to hear confirmation that this was actually God who was doing this. Verse 37, the angel then says, as we should remind ourselves often, for with God nothing shall be impossible. When Abraham and Sarah staggered at the promise and doubted that they would be able to have a child in their old age, they were asked the question, Is anything too hard for the Lord? When Jesus described a rich man and how He said it's harder for a a rich man to be saved than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, the disciples said, For who then can be saved if that be the case? They were told this exact phrase, with men, things are impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And we stagger not at believing the promises of this book and believing this story exactly as it is recorded because the God who breathed the universe itself into existence is not hindered by our limitations. And if He said this is how He chose to do His miracles, we say we believe He he did it because He said He could do it that way. He said He did, and we know He can because we know His power. Mary then responds and says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Mary was not a bystander in this. She surrendered to the will of God. 
And may all of us in our life look to heaven and say, Be it unto me, your servant, O Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. This is not my life. Mary, no doubt, had never chosen this situation. Perhaps if she did long to have the Messiah, she didn't realize the difficulties that would lie in this childbirth. Her future to come was now to have people perhaps look at her and refuse to believe that she actually was pregnant with God's child, but to think that she had been unfaithful to Joseph. And she would begin to worry shortly after this, Will Joseph believe me? Who will believe me that this is the case? Then to be called away providentially through a a, a worldwide taxation to have to travel into the city of Bethlehem where the prophecies in Micah 500 centuries earlier had said Christ would be born. She would have to in the final moments of her labor not be at home resting but rather be traveling not in a car but on the back of an animal entering into labor and giving birth to her child, not in a hospital, not with an epidural, but in a stable where the animals were because there was no room in the inn and brought him forth not to lay him on a king's bed, but in a feeding trough, the manger, where the animals would feed out of. This is a difficult situation. This is fraught with many different stressful things that were to come. But Mary looked to the angel and said, Be it unto me, according to the word of God, I surrender to God's will for my life. I don't know what difficult situations God may cause us to go through. And throughout World War II and other situations in history, the church has been persecuted and killed and called to stand up and live out their faith in the face of terrible things. And no doubt those people have said, I wish this had never come. I wish I had not been born in these times. Yet we do not choose the times, we do not choose the trials. We simply have the ability to look to heaven and say, Be it unto me, your servant, as your word declares, I surrender to the will of God. The second phase of this story, after the angel has visited Mary, will follow along as Mary visits Elizabeth. We'll try to keep moving here, so stick with me. Verse 39, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judea. She would have to travel maybe a couple of days into the hills that surrounded Jerusalem to where her cousin Elizabeth lived. Why did she go to the house of Zacharias? Why did she see Elizabeth? Because the angel told her, You can go to Elizabeth. She will believe you. She will give you comfort and cheer and further confirmation that this is the working of God for you to give birth to the Messiah. And entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. What we find here in the story is that she gave a greeting to Elizabeth. And from what I see in the text, before she's able to fully explain what happened, the Holy Ghost comes upon Elizabeth, and Elizabeth knows the whole story, and immediately begins to give praise and confirmation that this is God that is working in her. The word here for salutation that is used a couple times simply means greeting. Jesus used this word to say the Pharisees love the greeting in the marketplace. In verse 29, it uses the same word of salutation for the angel greeting. Mary. So this was a brief greeting, a hello, the physical meeting, the kiss that they on the cheek that they would share. And as it happens, the scripture records this. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. So God begins to give confirmation of this miracle through another miraculous event by saying the baby that is now six months old within the womb of Elizabeth hears the sound of the greeting and the baby leaps for joy. There's a lot going on here. Let's try and break it down a little bit. The word here for leaped means skipped. It literally means to jump. This was more than just a natural move or kick of the baby within the womb. My wife is an ultrasound technician. And as they're able to look, as the technology gets better and better, you're able to look and see that baby in the womb and see the movements that they make. And our daughter, Sarissa, while she was well before the time for her to be born, we have pictures. We're on the ultrasound. She's sucking her thumb. She's turning. She's being active. She's doing all of these things within the womb. And at one point in the pregnancy, even had the hiccups each and every night at the exact same time. We said, well, there she is. She's got the hiccups again. But the way Scripture records this story is that it's more than that natural movement of the baby inside of the mother's womb. It's a skipping. It's a jumping. It's a moving that is evidence of something supernatural going on. And I would be remiss if I did not simply very briefly mention the fact that the Bible always refers to babies in the womb as a baby, as a person, as a human being. And a baby within the womb, we know clearly through the technology today, is a human being with their own distinct DNA, with their heartbeat, and they bear the image of God the same way that we do. So much so that as we're able to see more and more what's going on inside of the womb where there's a pregnancy, we're told that women who are considering having an abortion, if they first view an ultrasound and see the baby on the screen, they 80 to 90% of the time will choose life because they're unable to get over it after that fact to process it. That if, if you don't look, if you don't know what's going on, maybe you can try and convince yourself that it's not a human, that it doesn't matter. But when you see with your eyes what's going on in the womb, you cannot deny the fact that it's a human being that deserves love, respect, and protection and constitutional rights the same as any other human. That's what the Word of God teaches us. The end of this verse records Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. This is pre-Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit was given to indwell each and every believer. But this is an event that's like unto the Old Testament where we see the Holy Spirit came upon David. It came upon Samson. And at different times throughout the Old Testament and before the Holy Spirit was given to indwell every believer, the Holy Spirit would come upon a believer for a specific purpose, often to prophesy, to give a revelation from God. Okay, so not only is Elizabeth the pregnant lady filled with the Holy Ghost, Luke chapter 1 tells us this about John the Baptist himself, the baby that's in the womb. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall neither drink wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. So the Holy Spirit comes to two distinct human beings and comes upon the mother but also fills the little baby inside the womb before he's even born. This is a miracle. This is obviously the exception. 
Some people from this verse have a doctrine. We pray that God will save the baby before it's born. And if we believe it's happened, we'll say, well, God saved you before you were born and you don't have to get saved. That's not what the Bible's teaching. This is incredible. It would be just as foolish to teach the virgin birth as a possibility again for us. That's not what happened. But what it was was God intervening and moving at this point in history to perform a miracle, to give confirmation and sign after sign that this is the Messiah. This is God that is at work. And part of what He did was to fill Elizabeth so that she could speak praise to God, but also to fill the baby so that the baby would leap at the sound of the greeting from the one who came to say the Messiah has come to be born for the sins of the world. It's beautiful. It's incredible. The story in Luke 1 continues, Elizabeth, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Verse 43, And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That little phrase there, whence is this to me, is her expressing, how am I so privileged? Why am I so blessed? Why have I been favored so much? that the mother of the Lord of the universe, of my God, should come to me. There's some songs that are beautiful, such as, Mary, did you know? And Mary, have you considered? If you read out these texts, they knew. They knew what was happening. And Elizabeth, speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, said, the baby you're pregnant with is God. He's my God. Verse 44. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation, the greeting that Mary gave, sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Here we're told expressly that the baby didn't just move. It didn't just leap. It leaped for joy at the announcement that Jesus was to be born. Remember that Elizabeth here was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was speaking words from God. She's not making all of this up. She didn't feel a kick and then translate that into something that the Bible records as her thinking. No, she knew what was happening. The six-month-old baby boy, the forerunner of Jesus, his cousin John the Baptist, leaped. Why? Leaped for joy. The Holy Spirit in the mother and the Holy Spirit in the baby combined with the news of Jesus' birth caused the baby to be filled with joy and as a result, he leaped. This was a miracle and this was God giving further evidence that the child in Mary was indeed the Messiah. How wonderful is this to remember as John the Baptist was born, as he went before Christ, as he prepared the way, he later said in John chapter 3, this same baby who leaped for joy at the news of Jesus coming, said this, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, does what? Rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The forerunner of Jesus received joy in what? In that he could fade to the background while Jesus was exalted. And the same way that he leaped for joy in the womb at the news of Jesus coming, he was filled with joy just to do the will of God and to see Jesus be exalted. We'll close now. Uh, one more verse here. 
Elizabeth says, And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. There shall be a performance. It will happen. You don't have to worry about it. If God has said it, it will come to pass. She said, Blessed is she that believed. Her husband didn't believe and was struck with his voice being taken away. Mary did believe. She was blessed for that. And at one point, Jesus said to Thomas, who refused to believe he had risen from the dead, after Jesus came and said, Thomas, you said you wanted to see my hands. Here they are. Touch them. And Thomas said, Lord, I believe. And Jesus said, you have believed because you've seen. But blessed is he that does not see and yet does believe. And blessed are you and I this morning if we believe. I'm afraid I may have done a fake out unintentionally with my words. I said, we'll close. And then I said one more verse. I meant to say, we'll close the second section and move on to the third section where we'll close. And that was the last verse of the second section, not of the final one. I'm sorry if you were excited to get out of here, but we'll try to make the third section really fast. Okay. The third part of the story is simple. Mary's song of praise. It's her pointing to God and praising him for what she'd done. And Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. As we see these verses, please note, Mary's focus was to magnify God, not to magnify herself. There's many servants of God throughout history who were blessed and favored, who God worked in miraculously and did wonderful things. But always it was the job of that person to point the praise to God and magnify Him. And always it was the responsibility of the church to worship God, not to worship the people whom God has worked through. Sometimes... It's a temptation in the Christian life. Perhaps as a pastor, it's even more of a temptation. The Bible says an overseer in the church should not be a novice. Lest being lifted up by pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. And when you preach before the people of God and when you receive compliments, it's easy to battle pride, which is destructive. And I must remind my heart, we all must remind our hearts when people give us praise or put the focus on us. I'm not saying don't do that. It's encouraging to know when you were a blessing. But in your heart, humble yourself and say, my soul does magnify my God, not myself. He must increase, but I must decrease. Mary says, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary looked at God and looked at the baby in her womb and she said, this is my Savior. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And Mary realized that she was a sinner as well and God was to give her salvation. In the next chapter, you'll find after the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2 that they went to the temple with two turtle doves. And you'll find in the, the Old Testament, I think in Leviticus, where it says that after a woman has given birth to a child, she is to bring two turtle doves to the temple as an offering and as a sin offering to the Lord. It's clear from the text of Scripture, Mary knew she was a sinner just like everybody else. She was blessed. She was highly favored. And I call her blessed today as they have in every generation that she would humble herself and yield to the will of God and be used by Him in this way. But Mary married Joseph and had other children also. As they said when Jesus came, they said, Are not thy brothers and thy sisters still with us? The Bible never says to pray to Mary, to worship Mary or that she's a deity herself. And I believe Mary would be heartbroken to see how some have done those things, for God did not say to do that. My spirit hath rejoiced in what? In God my Savior. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. 
Verse 48, Mary continues, For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. The phrase here, call me blessed, is translated from a word that means pronounce fortunate. Count happy. We say, blessed are you, Mary, from God that He chose to work in you in this incredible, miraculous way. Verse 49, Mary says, For He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is His name. And if you're a child of God this morning, if your name is written in heaven, you can quote this verse verbatim. Blessed is God who's done great things to me, and holy is His name. Mary says, and His mercy is on them that fear Him from generation to generation. What's the theme of Christmas? There's a lot of themes we could come up with, but the mercy of God on pitiful creatures who could never save themselves is surely a theme of Christmas. Praise God for His mercy. We could never claim that we earned or deserved our salvation, but He gave it to us through His mercy. Mary says, He hath showed strength with His arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. You see, Jesus' coming was twofold. It was to exalt them of low degree. It was to save those who had put their faith in Him and ask for mercy. But it was also to come to be a dividing line wherein every person would have to choose. Will you receive Christ or reject Him? Will you receive His mercy or will you receive His judgment? You see, the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah had to do with Him paying for sin, but it also always had to do with judgment, with the day of the Lord, with vengeance, with the message, repent, get out of the way of His wrath, for no one will withstand it if you are underneath it when it comes. You'll be crushed by it. And Jesus says, I give you the choice. Receive or reject. Receive my mercy or be under the judgment when it falls. Jesus said, don't think that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. He went on to say, a very household will be divided. The brother against the sister, and so on and so on. Because one will say, I believe in Jesus. The other will say, I reject. And it will be a sword that divides and causes us to choose. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. You must choose, so I beg of you, choose to be on the side of His mercy, not on the side of His judgment. Jesus saith unto them in Matthew, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? And He quotes the Psalms, which say, The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall the stone will grind him to powder. Mary looked and said, you've exalted those of low degree, but you're also going to cast down the proud. Verse 53, Mary closes by saying this, He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich hath he sent empty away. He hath hopen, meaning he helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he's as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. 
Here's where I'll close this morning. Mary looked at the situation and said He's come to fulfill the promises that were given to Israel. He's come to be Israel's king forever. And He is. Amen. At one point in time at that last generation, when they repent, all Israel shall be saved. He'll fulfill all of those Old Testament, Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. But I'd like to point out through one more scripture, and we're done, that who are all the people and races of the world? There's the Jews, and then there's the Gentiles. There's Jews and there's non-Jews. In Matthew chapter 12, it quotes Isaiah chapter 41 through 4, and it says this of Jesus' life, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He's going to save Israel. He's going to judge the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, speaking of Jesus. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Those verses are saying Jesus is not going to come by force. Saying that he won't cry and be heard in the street simply means he will come, he will speak his message. And the fact that it says a reed that is bruised, he won't come and break it. A smoking flax, a candle that's about to burn out, he's not going to come and quench. He's going to come and speak softly and give mercy and give opportunities for repentance until the day comes that he says, Now send forth the judgment unto victory. It mentioned the judgment of the Gentiles. But then this blessed verse says, And in His name shall the Gentiles trust. You see, in the Old Testament it was prophesied over and over, Jesus will be the King of Israel. But it was also prophesied that those that sit in darkness and in the region of death shall see a great light. And in His name shall the Gentiles trust. And this salvation that He brings to His people Israel, He also brings to all people who will trust in Him, and who will believe. Therefore, before Jesus went back to heaven in the ascension after the resurrection, He summed up the purpose for His whole entire life by telling His disciples, I leave you now with one great job, with one great commission. Go into all the world. Preach the good news to every creature. And this morning, at Christmas time, may we rejoice that our names are written in heaven that we're part of the Gentiles that have trusted in His name. But may we also fall on our knees and pray that the Spirit would empower us to keep giving that good news till it's too late. To our family members who we should never stop praying for. To the person who lives in Africa who doesn't know Jesus. To the person and the stranger who lives right across the street from us. May we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and pray that more Jews and more Gentiles will trust in His name, for His arms are open wide. Let's pray. Father, may You bless the preaching this morning. O blessed truth, a wonderful hope that Christ is born of a virgin to pay for our sins. Let's continue on in a moment of silent prayer, and then we'll be dismissed in a moment. Let's pray. Let's rejoice. Let's thank Him for what He's done. Let's pray for what He'll do.